Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. From an undisclosed broadcasting location. This is a test. For the next 60 seconds, this station will conduct a test of the emergency broadcast system. America, here comes the relief from the pain. Unapologetically, this is Lock and Load with Bill Brady. Hour number three. This is Lock and Load, and joining me now from, uh, I think, somewhere in Wisconsin is... Yeah, northern Wisconsin. There you go. Is a very, very noted writer, Dean Weingarten. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Bill. Glad to be here. Still traveling, but I'll probably be heading back in a few days. May take a while to get there. How much of a road trip is that? Uh, Well, it's about 2,500 miles from here. But I have several stops along the way. That's that's what I was going to say. There there was one time when I was young and, well, let's say less than cautious. Right. When I do the whole thing in one setting. One go round. Well, not one. You know, that was dumb. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I would think it's a little more enjoy. Every moment I spend on this earth, I'd like to enjoy. So it's probably a little more enjoyable to take it in little Little segments here and there. Little segments here I and there. I think it is. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, anyhow, I did not know that they had brown bears in Italy. They do. And they, it, they've had them there forever, it turns out. Right. In fact, it turns out the, the bears in Europe and in most of Asia, there's some subspecies when you get down in India and into more of the tropics. But most of the bears in Eurasia are essentially the same as the American grizzly bear. Uh, They're known as the European brown bears. If you read about uh, David killing a bear that was killing his sheep as a shepherd, that would have been a European brown bear, or essentially a grizzly bear. And uh, they... uh, what happened is that because people, with as soon as they got weapons that were about as effective as a spear and a few dogs, they would not tolerate bears hanging around their communities because bears were dangerous and they'd, you know, kill their livestock or compete for food or maybe take a person every now and then, and and so they would hunt them and drive them away. And, as the European communities expanded, you know, getting bigger and uh, more efficient at raising food, bears were not tolerated, and they'd driven further and further away. And by the 1900s, uh, bears were gone from most of the civilized, you know, acidified 
Europe, and uh, these bears have existed in the remote Alps, you know, in the remote mountain areas where it's very hard to get to. There always have been a few brown bears, and they became very cautious about getting close to people. So there were just a few left, but then they decided to import some that existed in some of the very dense forested regions of Eastern Europe. And because bears are protected, these bears were not fearful of people. And uh, this particular bear had already mauled a couple of people, I think a couple of years, well, a few months ago or like a year ago. And then uh, they killed this guy that was jogging, uh, running for exercise in northern Italy. And uh, Bear got a hold of him and and killed him. Let's see, it was 2020 when it attacked a father and a son. Same bear, as I understand. And so it's just reinforcing what humans have known for most of the time that they've been around bears, which is most of the time humans have been around, and that is that bears are dangerous, big, predatory animals, and it's dangerous to have them around. Bears were eliminated. I was surprised to learn this. They were eliminated from England during the medieval period. Right. And the only bears that came into England, or that they found in England from about uh, around 1500 or so, maybe even earlier, were bears that were captured somewhere else and imported to England to be uh, there for entertainment. And other than that, Bears have not existed in England for hundreds of years. So, so we now have uh, bears being imported into northern Italy and other places there in France. I don't know for sure if there's any in Germany yet. Uh, and there are some. There have always been some in Sweden and Norway, you know, in the more remote areas. And they're... Um, under some protection. They do hunt them in in Sweden and Norway, I think. But where they're under protection and they don't have to worry about any humans, they just, you know, start the same as what happens in the United States. No fear of humans, they start taking human livestock and not worrying about human presence and being a danger to humans. So that's, that's what has happened in this case. And my perspective is that when enough people get killed by bears and public uh, attitudes will change and they'll decide that uh, they need to keep those bears away from where people are. But right now, uh, those who worship the earth goddess Gaia have prevailed. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, you know, the wild animals are wonderful. And I think Disney had a lot to do with this, uh, you know, and Yogi and Boo Boo, which just taught people this completely invalid concept of how wild animals exist and how they react with people. Well, you know, we we have had many tragedies in the United States as well. Well, I mean, but uh, in part of the article, now you, you, you mentioned how bears are sort of a, they're, they're flourishing, aren't they? I mean, they're 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 making a rebound. If they were low in population, they're making a rebound, right? 
Oh, they are definitely. Because if you don't hunt the bears and there's lots of human food supplies around, what stops the bears from flourishing? Uh, their biggest danger is from other bears, you know, male bears of all species. Well, the ones I'm familiar with, polar bears, it appears. It's hard to get as much data on polar bears, but certainly uh, grizzly bears and black bears is the mature males kill as many uh, young ma- young bears, not just males, as any kind of young bear as they can catch. And they often eat them, eat them. They often eat young bears. and But often they just kill them because they don't want competition around. We had, I had a whole article on that just a few weeks ago because uh, a big male grizzly bear killed off a, a bear that people had been watching for a while, and it all happened on a nature a game camera that was live video and people saw it happen. Right. Oh my gosh, how horrible. A bear killed a younger bear. Well, that's the normal chain of events. The biggest predator of young bears is mature other bears, particularly mature boar bears or male bears. And uh, so if they, if they have plenty of food, they will expand their population until something stops them. And I predict that it will be people who will say, oh, you know, these bears aren't as friendly as we thought. And in Europe, of course, it's much harder to carry uh, a weapon to defend yourself. I'm not even sure if you can get bear spray in large parts of Europe. I mean, they don't let you carry firearms. And in a lot of places, they don't even let you carry a pocket knife, I understand. Certainly not in England. Yeah. Hang on right there. Coming up on the break, talking to Dean Weingarten as we do. We will be right back. This is Lock and Load. Welcome back. This is Lock and Load. We're talking to Dean Weingarten. We were just talking about bears in Europe. Yeah, and what we what we see is that bears have been in Europe for a long time, and that the bears, and they're essentially genetically the same as grizzly bears in the United States. In the lower 48 of the United States, grizzly bears are very aggressive because they haven't been hunted for decades, for several generations of bears, and they're not afraid of people. And so just 2,000 grizzly bears in the lower 48 kill as many people as the 40,000 or so grizzly bears in Alaska. Uh, And in Europe, the grizzly bears, because people would kill them off when they became a pest, became very shy and they would stay away from people as much as possible and stick to the remote mountains. And so they gained a reputation being harmless because they'd stay away from people. Well, now they are repopulating uh, places like northern Italy and the Alps 
with more grizzly bears and the bears are becoming more aggressive because nobody hunts them anymore. So that's pretty much what's happening with bears around the world. Bear populations are expanding. Human populations are expanding. You get conflict between the two. And surprise, when a big, powerful bear meets a human without any weapons, the human tends to lose. And then the bear loses afterwards. Right. So before we move on to this, uh, you know, this isn't a new thing. I mean, you and I talked about this briefly last time about the bear in Japan. Right. That that basically took out. How how many people did that bear take out? I mean, I'm trying to remember quite a few. It wasn't just one or two, that's for sure. Yeah. And it, and it, it, we, we, I need to get better prepared and reread that so I can tell you specific details on it. But it was a whole village was terrorized by, by this bear and they lost quite a few people. And the bear just kept coming back. And, and finally, I think, uh, a hunter in, in Japan that uh, was willing to kill a bear, you know, took care of the problem. So it was a Usuri brown bear. This happened in uh, November of 1915. Yeah, and the brown bears there in Japan, I think they're just a subspecies of this European brown bear. Right. Uh, they're they're essentially a grizzly bear. Uh, but uh, but yeah, well, and they're big and they're dangerous, and if they learn not to fear humans, bad things happen. This bear came out of hibernation and uh, just went looking to eat, didn't it? Well, and that's the thing that you see, and it's not real common. But sometimes bears go don't have enough food when they go into hibernation. They haven't been able to put on enough weight. And then they wake up really hungry. And there isn't a lot of food around for them in the middle of winter. Right. So we saw this happen in that really tragic Canadian case where that young mother and her about, I think it was a one-year-old child or so, grew up uh, at a trapper's cabin in uh, the northern northwest territories of Canada, as I recall, and a, a grizzly bear that was absolutely desperate and dying, you know, it had no hunger, I mean, had no food in it, had no fat, and it was just starving to death, and it came across those two and ambushed them and killed them, and was eating them, and then the husband came back and uh, saw the tracks of the bear and realized there was a potential problem. He found that his wife had left the cabin and hadn't come back, and he tracked, backtracked on it, and the bear, the husband was armed. He had a right. When the uh, bear charged him at very close distances, he was able to just dispatch the bear right there and kill it. And then Tragically, I, I, it's hard to imagine how horrific this must be to kill a bear and then find that you're a couple hours too late and your wife, young wife and child have been killed and, and fed upon by that bear just within a short distance from your cabin. Well, but, I mean, uh, this, this apparently went on for what? This went on for what? Uh, let me see. About the one in Japan you talked about did go on. Five for days, yeah. five days of this. Yeah, five days of this. So I mean, uh, this was this was a, and they've got a a life size rendition of the bear, which they have a human, some sort of helmet for a human, for scale. That was a big bear. Yeah, well, and uh, it makes sense. And people don't realize that there is a lot of Japan that's pretty wild. Yeah. 
I mean, sure, they've got a high-density population, but it's concentrated in the big cities, which are all on the coastline, as I understand. And, of course, Japan is quite mountainous mountains. I mean, mountainous islands, and the mountains get quite high, and you get up in these remote remote mountains. There's no people there, very few. You can find that there are, because Japan now has a declining population, there are empty houses all over Japan right. in the rural areas that go for cheap. But, you know, it costs a lot to keep them up, which is why nobody's repairing them. And uh, if you do get one of these houses and decide to live there, you're in a rural area of Japan, which probably doesn't have a lot of services you might want. So the houses go begging and uh, they fall apart and rot. And there's more and more areas in Japan where they're, are significant wildlife. And there are people in Japan who hunt that wildlife, but they have to get a lot of permits from the government in order to be able to own a rifle and go hunt wildlife. But it's not completely impossible. Some people do it. I wonder if there's any bear uh, mutations happening in in those uh, zones where they had a lot of radiation. That's a good question. I've heard about boars. I think... In Japan, all those zones are right on the coast. So it would be probably more likely that you'd get some sea lice that would be mutated. Right. Uh, And the the bears, my understanding is they're all up in the mountains. So there's probably good separation between the bears and and the radioactivity. And and my understanding, and I have studied uh, nuclear uh, reactions and... uh, the radiation that results from the nuclear reactors and stuff a bit. And I will, the, the level of radiation there is certainly above what would have been considered background or normal. But we usually don't see uh, mutations that are viable. Uh, most mutations from radiation, they just aren't viable. They just die. I'm not saying you can't get accelerated mutations that happen. But it's, it's just not very common or likely for for the more complicated animals like mammals and large mammals. I mean, you can get people, you can get things that happen. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just not real likely in that area. I mean, where we were more likely to see it was probably at uh, Chernobyl, you know, which is now under military contention between Ukraine and Russia. And, uh, yeah, you know, it was occupied by Russian troops for weeks, as I recall, and the Russian commander there, I mean, you got to give him some credit. He said, well, they're not going to shell Chernobyl, the Chernobyl reactor, so I can have a safe headquarters here. But then he went and had his troops dig fortifications out in the contaminated area, and a lot of our reporters who have gotten sick from radiation poisoning. Hang on for me, if you will. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. For over 25 
25 years, Aero Precision has paved the way as a leading manufacturer of American-made AR parts. Aero Precision caters to the rifle builder by engineering quality receivers, hand guards, and other essential parts. Aero Precision's added enhancements create a smooth build process from start to finish for beginners and seasoned builders. Whether this is your first rifle or your 50th, Aero Precision offers everything you need to make a quality AR at an affordable price. In the 21st century, the handgun has become the preeminent self-defense tool. At CNH Precision, we specialize in taking your weapon to the highest degree of functionality possible. With a complete array of goods and services specializing in red dot sight installation, CNH Precision will help you realize the most effective handgun the first time. If you need slide milling, installation, or accessories, go to chpws.com. CNH Precision. Welcome to the Boom Squad. At Chambers Custom, we have one job. We strive to build the most obsessively reliable, accurate, and beautiful pistols for the discriminating gun owner. Using the ageless 1911 design with a 21st century approach to each part and component, Chambers Custom meticulously begins each pistol as a standalone project, creating a bespoke, handcrafted, peerless firearm. They integrate all of the internal, external, and intrinsic elements that make a custom 1911 unit. Go to ChambersCustom.com. Chambers Custom, truly the mechanical advantage. At Spikes Tactical, we are all shooters with a very simple mission. Make the best product we can perfect at the best possible price for our consumers. We strive to produce the best components and rifles available with quality control second to none because real-world events don't allow for a second chance. Whether you are an operator, competitor, or home defender, Spikes Tactical will serve you well. Go to SpikesTactical.com. Spikes Tactical, 100% American-made to the highest standard. such thing as a fair fight, and we bring the unfair advantage that is the 2011 platform. Dominate. At Staccato, we know the most important gun you own is the one that you're carrying when you're facing that threat to life and freedom. Win. We want you to enter that objective, confidence that you are carrying the best gun in the gunfight. No compromise. No sacrifice. Staccato2011.com. Stand ready to face down the darkness with 2011. Holster.com, the home of DeSantis-quality built American-made products for 45-plus years. Supporting police and government contracts from first responders to responsible citizens. Holster.com is your source for quality American-made leather and Kydex holsters for the armed American. For concealed carry or open carry, Holster.com has what you need. We didn't invent concealment. We perfected it. Go to Holster.com now and buy a DeSantis holster today. What's in a name? If that name is Ace Firearms, you've just entered a very expensive business. First, a fully appointed gun shop with all the guns, ammo, and accessories you could possibly imagine. But then you enter the manufacturing facility that is home to Red Alligator Concealment, Militia Arms Customs, and so much more. Ace Firearms is beyond a simple gun shop. This is a totally peerless operation. To find out more, go to acefirearms.com. Ace Firearms. This is only the beginning. At MGS, we have what it takes to reinvent yourself. With a curriculum designed to balance work, family, and a gun repair education, MGS provides the gateway into one of the fastest-growing segments of the gun industry. Modern Gun School's mission is to provide high-quality distance education using time-tested materials and hands-on projects designed to develop a proficiency in both the technique and the business of gunsmithing. Go to mgs.edu. MGS Trade School. Your future is waiting.
All right, welcome back. We are talking to Dean Weingarten from Ammo Land, except he's in northern Wisconsin right now, which he's always from Ammo Land. So uh, let's look at this. This is a this is a, a look at Delaware. Delaware federal district judge finds unusual way to ban semi-auto guns and magazines. Tell me about this. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because this judge, his name is uh, Richard Andrews. He's, uh, and he's in the district of Delaware. He's a federal judge. And he looks at how the Bruin decision affects the Second Amendment. Well, it affects the enforcement of the Second Amendment. And he's, he really, it appears to me, he's really twisting around trying to figure out how he can find a way to keep the Delaware law as constitutional under Bruin. And under Bruin, uh, Judge Clarence Thomas, who wrote the opinion, said, if the conduct by the individual falls under that which is protected by the Second Amendment, then you don't go to a second step. You just say, well, it's protected. And the only way that you can then justify regulation of it is if you can show that at the time the Second Amendment was passed in 1791, and maybe a little bit of 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, if you can show that that type of regulation was well accepted and general and and people said, yeah, well, that, that doesn't fall under the Second Amendment. Everybody understands that at the time. So judge uh, the judge looked at it, and he says um, that the rifles and magazines that hold more than 70 rounds, are, they're not unusual and dangerous, and they are in common use, and that would ordinarily be enough to say, okay, they are protected by the Second Amendment. But he goes to a different rationale. He says that, well, it's technological changes that have been dramatic, and those implicate unprecedented societal concerns. Therefore, we can ban them. Okay. <laughs> I don't think the Supreme Court. I just don't think Supreme Court's going to buy that. And he then he he looks at history, but it's late history. He looks at history from after 1900, which the Supreme Court basically said no. Anything after 1900 is not relevant because it's way after the Second Amendment was adopted. And then he looks to regulation on the concealed carry of Bowie knives, which there were a lot. And Bowie knives, I've read these laws, and they're pretty bad. Turns out just about any knife will qualify under a Bowie knife regulation. And Several states banned the concealed carry of Bowie knives. But he said he finds that since several states banned the concealed carry of Bowie knives, therefore we can ban the ownership <laughs> of semi-automatic rifles and pistols. But it really doesn't hold up. I mean, banning concealed carry is a lot different from banning ownership. And virtually, I haven't found any of the states that actually banned ownership of Bowie knives. Now, there were a couple of states, one state, 
that I can think of um, that basically said, if you have a Bowie knife and we are taxing people on private property, then we're going to include that Bowie knife as private property that we tax, and we're going to tax it so much. And pretty stiff taxes for the time, you know, like half the value of a Bowie knife would be taxed. But that only held up for a short while in one state. It might have been two over time, and they just dropped that. I mean, it's not too hard to hide a Bowie knife, and how, the, how is the tax person going to be sure whether you have it or not? Uh, so I guess they just depended on the honor system. Do you have a Bowie knife? Okay, here's the tax. Pay it. <laughs> but that seems a lot different than a ban on the ownership of rifles that are very commonly owned uh, in the United States. I've also seen a judge, this judge, uh, Judge Andrew, he doesn't seem to be taking this tack, but I've seen another judge recently take a tack that said that uh, you can't have this semi-automatic rifle because it's a good military weapon. And the Second Amendment doesn't have anything to do with the military. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's, but for 80 years, leftists and progressives particularly have been saying the Second Amendment is only about military arms. Well, now that judges are putting some teeth into the Second Amendment and saying, yes, it really does protect an individual right, suddenly the progressives are saying, well, it doesn't really apply to any military arms. And, it's, you know, I think Andrew took the right tack on here because Bowie knives definitely were considered useful in military combat. And, heck, you, the uh, classic Marine uh, combat knife, uh, I think it's uh, the K-Bar. Uh, that... Uh, Many people would say that's a classic Bowie knife. Right. And so this whole, it, it strikes me that these judges that want to figure out a way to regulate arms under the Second Amendment are just trying to find what the courts called uh, ways-means tests, or means-ways tests. That is, we want this to happen so we're going to find out a way to make it happen. Right. In other words, the, the judge is just saying, I don't like guns. Therefore, we've got to figure out a way to be able to ban them. And that's what uh, I see many of these cases where um, judges try to come up with some way to ban items they don't like. Well, that's uh... and there's there's just a whole bunch of these cases in. Uh, I've written about a lot of them, several state cases. All of these are coming up uh, to the higher courts. So almost, most of them will probably be appealed to the uh, various circuit courts in which they exist. I mean, we have cases coming up in the Fifth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit, and the Third Circuit, and the Second Circuit, and the Seventh Circuit. I'm sure, I don't know for sure if we got a case. I think in the Third Circuit, there's one coming up by us, and I think that's New, New Jersey, maybe. Uh, so if I missed a circuit in there, you can tell me. I, I don't recall. Oh, yeah, in the Eighth Circuit, we have 
we had at least a bump stock case. I don't know if that's still in play or not. But, I mean, there's just all these cases. It's getting to be so many of them that um, it's not that easy to keep track of them. Right. Right. I know. And I, I think this judge, Andrews, in Delaware, I think he will be overturned. I think he's just clearly out of line in saying that he's basically doing a version of what I call the that was then, this is now uh, argument. Well, the Second Amendment was a long time ago. Therefore, we can ignore it. <laughs> that was then. This is now. Right. I don't think it will fly. Yeah. So, coming up on the last break, and uh, this article is, uh, let's see, when was this put up there? This got put up there on the 28th of April, so it is near the top of the page, if not on the front page, depending on how things have been going at Ammoland. If not, then you can get it at Ammoland by going to all contributors and looking for Dean's name and going there. Then you'll find 2,200-plus other articles by Dean waiting for you right there at Ammoland.com. All of them, by the way, still poignant today, still meaning something today, especially that whole bear database he's built. This, this should actually be a book of some sort. We should, be, we should be reviewing a book. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. Line. We're talking to Dean Weingarten, and we're going back in time a little bit. This is this is an interesting article we never got to touch on back from the 24th of April. This is the history of bans of weapons or of arms, and um, this is all going back before 1900. What did you find? Well, this is a law review article that was published by uh, David Copel and Joseph Greenway. It's 165 pages long. This is a essentially a book. It is huge. And uh, the research that Copel and Greenlee did, now Greenlee, Copel is well known as one of the foremost experts on Second Amendment uh, law and jurisprudence and the history, particularly of Second Amendment and what preceded it. And this is 165 pages of dense discussion about bans on arms, ban, weapons bans that existed from medieval Europe in England all the way up to 1900. And what makes this particularly important is the Supreme Court in the Bruin decision, as we discussed in the last segment, said that if you're going to justify a modern firearms law that implicates actions protected by the Second Amendment have to show that it was accepted and continued and was generally used at the time that the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791. Or you might go a little further into when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. And uh, Clarence Thomas in the Senate, I mean, basically they said, 
and don't even think about going anywhere beyond 1900. So this article covers that entire period, and it looks at all of the arms. It's exhaustive. It's incredible in the detail. They just they cover every uh, statute that existed in medieval Europe. All, I mean, medieval England, all the way through the colonies, all the way through the Civil War, all the way through to 1900 for all the states. And even some, I think there are some localities below state level that they cover um, for bans on weapons, all weapons. And now for someone who studies this a lot, which I do and I have, and I've read enormously, you know, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of pages on this, there were things in there that I had not heard of, which shows you how well they did this research. This is a tour de force of, of uh, academic research on the precursors and on statutes affecting Second Amendment rights. And one of the things that absolutely stood up out to me was that King James I in 1606 granted to members of the Virginia Charter. Now, this is when they founded the Virginia colony in the New World, in what's now the United States, and that the Virginia colony covered roughly about a third of the original 13 colonies, maybe a little more. That when that charter was granted, it... It included for, to the members to the members of the Virginia colony, people who lived there, perpetual rights to bring sufficient shipping, furniture of armor, weapons, ordnance, powder, victual, and other things necessary for the said plantations and for their use and defense there. In other words, the members of the Virginia colony had the right to keep bare arms before England generally did, because that right came about with the Glorious Revolution, I think it was in 1689. So, by the way, the northern colonies, the New England colonies, were also granted the perpetual rights to arms and armor and weapons and such. So they constitute about a third of the land mass of the future United States, in the northern colonies. And so there were only the middle colonies, which were New York, Pennsylvania, Vermont, and New Jersey. And they were originally part of uh, a colony of uh, the Netherlands. They're called New Netherlands, and they were conquered in 1664. So most of the colonies, colonists in the United in the future United States already had the right to bear arms. And it preceded the right to bear arms as a formal declaration of the English Bill of Rights in 1689. So that was fascinating to me because it showed that when the colonists, who knew their history very well, said we are being denied our rights as Englishmen, they were they had better and more rights to arms than the people in England did because it had been granted to them in perpetuity by an English king. 
Now, there's some other things that are uh, just fascinating. That was just one of the first things that popped out. I mean, if you're interested in the histories of uh, the legislation that was accepted back then, you will find incredible detail of this. Uh, starting on page 37, they talk about this in excellent, excellent history on repeating arms. And I found out about uh, a repeating system of uh, flintlock arms that was in use uh, for 100 years called the Lorenzani system, which I didn't know about before. And, of course, they talked about the Durandani air rifle, which I had known about. And it goes into great detail about the people's right to privately owned cannon. That uh, there's all about uh, Americans privately owning cannons before and during the Revolutionary War. And the particular case is just fascinating, wonderful case about a man named Allen, as an American. He must have been pretty well off because he purchases 20 thousand muskets. That is a lot of muskets. Indeed. And 20, 24 field pieces, cannon, in France, and he's having them shipped to the United States. Now, that's a significant amount of armor, arms there, and this occurred in 1796. So that's five years after the Bill of Rights was ratified with the Second Amendment. And the British, they stopped this ship. Now, we were an independent country at the time, but they stop it and they say, you're taking all those muskets and you're taking those cannons to Vermont to be used in a revolt in Canada against the British. And he says, no, I'm not. And, and he he said they're just for private use in Vermont. And he was in the court, you know, British Admiralty Court, and says in America, arms and military stores are free merchandise. So anybody who has property and choose to put make their gardens into artillery parks and their houses into arsenals, they can do it. And the court restored those arms to that American citizen and sent him back on his way. Now, that says an awful lot about the state of the Second Amendment Indeed. in 1796. So it's a, it, I urge anybody who has the inclination to dig deep into the history of how the Second Amendment was perceived and what the various laws were of the period to read this article. Now, you get a good taste of it in the review I did on AMOLED, but the article itself, I mean, that's a fair-sized book, 165 pages. Yeah. Indeed it is. Well, we're running out of time. That worked out perfectly, and I appreciate you taking the time to get somewhere where you could do this. I know that on the road it's sort of difficult, so thank you very much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure, Bill, and I look forward to doing more in the future. Very good. Well, we'll be doing it again. This coming Friday. So, anyway, check out Dean's stuff at AmmoLand.com. Just go down to All Contributors. Click on that. He is midway down on the left-hand side, Dean Weingarten. 2,200-plus 
articles for you. I'll be back in about 21 hours in between now and then. If you'd be so kind, you should absolutely remember this. It has never been about gun control. Not once. Not ever. It has been. It's always going to be about total control. This has been Lock and Load. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.